0: 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, and reading to the end of the chapter. Please give your full attention, this is God's word. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had... They would not have crucified the Lord of glory, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the spirits. For the spirit teaches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person, which is in him? And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So for the reading of God's word, he had his blessing to it. I imagine that most of you are familiar with that term, bait and switch, bait and switch. Uh, This usually refers to the immoral practice of luring customers in by promising them one thing, offering one thing, and then switching the offer once you've got them, uh, got the customer there, bait and switch. Uh, This is something that unfortunately, uh, either overtly or at times less deliberately, is committed uh, by churches, sadly. Uh, Some churches promote certain things. They promote stimulating programs or music uh, or coffee bars or radical this or extreme crazy that, all to pique the interest and to get people in. And then once they are there, they revert back to the ordinary message of the Bible, the ordinary message. Or worse, they don't revert back and continue to use worldly practices of, uh, from, from, from business or marketing, uh, pushing biblical means and practices aside. Uh, and that's a problem. That's a problem. And ultimately it reveals a lack of trust in God and a trust in God's ways. Uh, and that's never a good place to be. The Apostle Paul in this letter uh, to the, the Corinthian church, the 1 Corinthians he shows that this is a huge problem, and he's been developing his argument, his, his uh, correction to this church in Corinth, and he's been insisting that man's wisdom, man's wisdom and ways and strength are directly opposed to God's wisdom and ways, uh, and he's been telling them that regardless of the perception of a man and man's worldly perspective, it's God's ways that must be followed, it's God's ways that must be held to. Paul has told them, and he says elsewhere, people are dead in their sins. They are children of wrath. And the message of the cross, Paul tells us, told the Corinthians and us through this letter, the message of the cross, Christ crucified, it is a stumbling block. It is foolishness to them. Dead people are unable to hear and to grasp and understand this message, the message of the cross. And if that's the case, these two things are true. Why is Paul so adamant about the proclamation of this message? Well, it's because Paul knows. Paul knows that it's through the preaching of Christ crucified. He knows that it's via this message that the Holy Spirit calls those to whom God has chosen. And he creates faith in their hearts and he unites them to Christ. It's through this message, the message of the cross, the gospel itself. And this is a summary of some of what Paul has been leading them through, what we've seen so far uh, in 1 Corinthians, in the first chapter, um, in the beginning of the second. And the ramifications of this preaching, they include stumbling and confusion. Stumbling and confusion. And also, this preaching includes some of the ramifications. It's the demonstration of the wisdom of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Recall that this is what God has told us here in this letter to this point. What the world sees as wisdom and strength, God regards as what? Foolishness, as weakness. And it's through what the world sees as foolish that God, through that foolish and weak message, it's through that that his wisdom and power is revealed. Uh, this is clearly evident from this glaring chasm that we've seen. Right. Paul, as you recall, has made some distinctions um, uh, and, and laid some dichotomies uh, in Corinthians to this point. Those who are being saved, those who are perishing. The wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And this chasm between the thinking of believers and non-believers shows this, this, uh, this, 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 the evidence of this uh, distinction. In the non-Christian mind, you see cannot, through its own thinking, through its own wisdom, through its own intelligence, it cannot think itself to salvation. It cannot reason itself to the truth of the gospel. Rather, it's God himself who must give understanding. It's God who must give this understanding. God must provide understanding of spiritual things if they are to be understood at all. Because if God does not do it, the cross remains what? Foolishness to us. Foolishness. And so because the gospel can never be discovered or understood by man's wisdom, God himself must reveal the true understanding of that gospel through that message of the cross that he's seen fit providentially to use as the operation of this. And so all of those things, recall, that the Corinthian church was struggling with, that Paul is addressing for them, these errors in, and they're wrestling with things like uh, divisions in the church, errors in regard to worship. They're suing one another. There's sexual immorality that's rampant. None of these things, none of these things could be corrected or dealt with if they wouldn't grasp this this initial point. And it's true for us as well. We must understand this truth. It's God's sovereignty. He's the one that reveals to us truth. Uh, It's the Holy Spirit that must provide the correction as well as the capability to receive that word of correction and direction if we're to be corrected and directed. And so we see these issues in our passage this morning, verses 6 to 16. Uh, Paul says that truth, right, truth with a capital T, divine wisdom, says that comes from God alone. And it's in complete contradistinction to the wisdom of the world. The world sees this as foolishness. Right, so how do people get it? How are people to understand it? How do people come to faith in Christ For salvation. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. God himself is the one uh, that works this out. And this passage tells us this morning. The passage is about the wisdom of God. The way of salvation. The gospel. The truest and highest wisdom. The wisdom of Christ. What does this passage say or tell us about the wisdom of God? What are we to know about the wisdom of God? What is Paul telling us here? Well, first he tells us who receives it, right? Who receives this wisdom? And that's, of course, is God's people receive the wisdom of God. The gospel is true wisdom. And then secondly, it tells us about wisdom, the wisdom of God, how it is to be received, right? So who receives it and how is it to be received? And then again, it's, it's, it's wrought by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of wisdom. And so that's kind of the structure of this, this passage and the message this morning, Again, who receives the wisdom of God and how that wisdom is received? Or, if you will, uh, first, the revelation and its recipients, and secondly, the revealer of the revelation. Uh, if that helps uh, ca- uh, codify that a little better. But first, the revelation and its recipients, right? Verses 6 to the beginning of verse uh, 10, the beginning half of that verse. But we see in verses 6 and 7, uh, there is this contrast. And again, verses 6 and 7, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And you see it there again, right? There's this contrast between man's wisdom, the wisdom of this age, and true wisdom, wisdom that is from God. Do you see how in verse 6 what Paul is doing there? He connects the wisdom of the world to the rulers of this age, right? They're kind of in parallel construction. What is Paul saying there? The rulers of this age. I wonder different theories of what you heard that means. Um, Well, it's possibly it could be referring to the principalities and powers, the demonic influences that we read about in Paul's other writings, like 2 Corinthians 4 or Romans 8 at the end of Romans chapter 8. But given the fact that this is not referred to in 1 Corinthians and the thrust of Paul's discussion and the content of what Paul's been saying so far, uh, what he's been talking about, right, human wisdom, uh, Paul's repeatedly referred to human wisdom. And so taking all of this into consideration, what Paul most likely means when he says the rulers of this age, referring to the Jewish and Roman rulers and authorities, Right. We see this uh, in a number of places uh, that I, I'll point your, to direct your attention to briefly. Uh, we see in Acts chapter 3, uh, Acts chapter 3 verse 17, uh, we read this, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did, our, as did your rulers, right. this is referring to the rulers of that time, um, or if we go forward to Acts chapter 4 verse 5, on the next day, there are rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, and with Ananias, and it goes on, right? So there's, there's this reference to these, the Jewish or the Roman rulers. Uh, we could go on to uh, other verses that speak of this, but this is likely what Paul is talking about. He's talking about people like Pilate and people like Caiaphas, the rulers of the time. And remember, also, it's not insignificant that in verse eight he references. Uh, What they did, right? It was these these people, these rulers, following the wisdom of the age, who did what? They put wisdom incarnate to death. They crucified the Lord of glory. And by the way, what do we know? What else do we know about these rulers in redemptive history, in God's plan? How does it end for them? What what, what happens to them? Right. We know the big picture of what this is, the power and the authority that they exercise is merely what? Merely temporal. It's temporary. And according to God's word, that rule and that power, along with everything connected with it, connected to this present evil age, will perish. It will come to nothing. And it will come to pass that even they, these rulers, the rulers of this age, they too will bend the knee before the same Jesus whom they crucified. And so it's Christians... It's believers, Paul says, who speak true wisdom among the mature. So Paul says, among the mature. Uh, that word there is uh, teleoi, uh, which means perfect, uh, mature, full-grown, having reached the utmost development. It's related to a word we have in English that you're all aware of, uh, telos, right? Telos, what's the telos of something? It's its end, it's its goal. And we can see this in a number of places uh, so you can get kind of the flavor and the sense of what this word means. Um, Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 5. You can see some of the usage of this word, the same word that Paul is saying. Um, This this, this spoken, truism is spoken among the mature. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14 uh, this reference, I'm sure you're familiar. It says, "But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers and discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil." Right? It's solid food is for the mature. Right? It's the complete. It's the fullness of. And then, if you turn to James, uh, we get an insight into this word uh, that is helpful <clears throat> in a number of places. Uh, James chapter one, verse verse four, to begin with, where he says. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect. That's the word there, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if you drop down to verse 17, the word is used again. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down, right? And so this is a sense of what the word means. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 5, we read, Be perfect as your Father is perfect. It's the same word, perfect. Or in Ephesians 4, as as Paul is telling uh, the Ephesians, he tells them in chapter 4 that the Lord has given gifts to the church, the officers of the church, to do certain things for for what purpose? So that they would become a perfect man, the old King James says, or a mature man, or complete. That's the same word. And so that's kind of what that word means, the mature, uh, the perfect, the complete of course, Paul is referring here to those who have reached their goal, the mature. Do you see the, the, the kind of irony that is going on there? It's completely contrary and opposite of worldly, fleshly thinking. Right? It's not those, uh, I'm sorry, it is those who are not wise, who are not powerful, who are not of noble birth. It's those who trust in Jesus, it is they who actually reach that goal. The discovery of true wisdom. The very thing that the the, the, the Greeks uh, and the the philosophers and the, 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 uh, the sophists sought after and valued so much. The discovery of true wisdom belongs to those who trust in Christ. So it's they who have been called to faith, right? And how is it the case that they have been called to faith? Again, it's through the message of the cross, right? That's what Paul's. Uh, the, the punch of what Paul has been talking about. It's through the message of the cross, preaching of the gospel. And it's through that message they are called to faith. A message in which the wisdom of Christ is revealed. And so we contrast this again to the, 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 the great or, or, orators and philosophers of the day. And for all their skill and all their talent in speaking and philosophizing, they will never on their own Arrive at true wisdom. And so in verse 7, Paul goes on, he says that true wisdom is previously secret wisdom is from God. Right again, verse 7, see what he says. Um, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, a secret and hidden wisdom which was decreed before the ages for our glory. Right? And so this wisdom is wholly different. From the wisdom of this age because it had been hidden in the past. Uh, And that's what a mystery is when we read of in scripture. It's something that had been once hidden but is now revealed. God's wisdom had been a mystery. It had been hidden and therefore secret. Uh, But what this is speaking of here is not a a proto-Gnostic or a wisdom that philosophers in the know only could uncover for themselves. Those who had the secret knowledge. Because it couldn't be discovered or had by by occultic practices or magic practices or speculation. These are all things that were prominent in the Greco Roman world in the first century uh, and following. But prior to uh, to, to, to the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, entering into his creation, these things were hidden. And how were they hidden? There's lots, again, lots of speculation about what, what Paul is talking about here, and to be sure, this can be a difficult difficult verse to uh, to exegete and to unpack, but how was the, were these things hidden? They were hidden in shadows and types and pictures in the Old Testament, right? Shadows and types, type and shadow. So it wasn't as if it was restricted or kept entirely from God's people in the Old Testament. But as Paul says in Galatians four, remember he talks about When the fullness of time came, what's he referencing? When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, revealing on full display what had been hidden previously. And so the wisdom of God was hidden from the world until it was revealed in Christ. It's in Jesus Christ that this new age has dawned, this final age, the ultimate age. It's been inaugurated, it's been begun and it will be consummated as a second coming. And praise God, we get to live in the time between the times, right? That's the time that we're in. What was hidden in the Old Testament era, the Old Testament epoch, is now fully revealed and brought out in the open in Christ. And so therefore, the wisdom of this age stands in glaring contrast to the wisdom of the age that is to come, that indeed has begun already. <clears throat> So we have to see this connection here between Christ coming and the revelation of what was previously hidden in types and shadows along with Christ ushering in the last time, the ultimate age. These are central to the theology of the New Testament. This is the structure of all of Paul's teaching. It's this two-age structure. This age and the age to come. And so Christ's person and work in the fullness of time has been has brought that age to come. And the contrast between these two rings loudly as Paul seems to repeat himself again and again, showing this contrast. This is why Paul says in verse 7 that what was revealed was decreed, or predestined, or predetermined, or foreordained for us. For us. It was God's purpose in this, to bring His people to Glory. And that glory is, of course, the last stage, the last state of that maturity that he spoke of earlier. And then in verse 8, Paul goes on. None of the rulers of this age had understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. The wisdom of God is understood only through divine revelation. You see the point that's being made there. There's a revelation there's the recipients of that revelation. And it's not those who are of the wisdom of the world, who are of the natural man who receive this, right? The, the rulers of this age, what? They did not understand God's wisdom. And therefore, what did they do? Because they crucified the Lord of glory. And of course, Jesus told us as much while he was still on earth. Remember, at the time of the crucifixion, uh, what did Jesus say about them? His Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke chapter 23. And so they were rebellious sinners. They were clueless sinners to true wisdom. And it's kind of a wonderful parenthetical um, analysis, that phrase, the Lord of glory. And he crucified the Lord of glory. It's a most glorious and exalted title used of Jesus Here. And this phrase teaches us something about the nature of our Savior, our exalted Savior. It teaches us His divinity and His humanity. Something that's key to our understanding of who Christ is. Two natures in one person. Remember, glory is something throughout scriptures that God is jealous to maintain alone for Himself. He alone gets the glory. He alone will be glorified. We see throughout the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah... Uh, verses 40 and following, he alone maintains that glory for himself. And glory in the Bible is so closely connected uh, to God the Father. In Ephesians 1, there's a reference to the Father as the Father of glory, Ephesians 1.17. But here in verse 8 of our passage this morning, Paul says that Jesus shares in that glory. Jesus shares in that glory. And in doing so, he gives Christ a glory equal to that of Yahweh Uh, from the Old Testament, God himself, because he is God himself. Uh, And in that one statement, crucified the Lord of glory, we see there in in that statement both the divinity and the humanity of Christ, uh, one person and two natures. Of course, the Lord of glory is a reference to his divinity. And being crucified speaks of his humanity. And then in verse 9, Paul goes on, and he continues this contrast, between the rulers of this age and those who receive God's wisdom. There's a contrast between those two. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, but God has prepared for those who love him. And as you know, when the New Testament says things like, as it is written, that's usually signaling uh, the quotation, a quotation from the Old Testament is coming. As it is written. Uh, And in verse 9, we have a paraphrase of Isaiah 64. That's why we read our Old Testament reading this morning, um, and possibly an allusion as well there to Psalm 31. uh, And what Isaiah is doing in in chapter 63, where this is being quoted from, he's speaking of the distinctiveness of God, the distinctiveness of Yahweh, the covenant God of the people of Israel. Isaiah is saying that Yahweh is not known by those who do not trust him. He is not known by those who reject him, who do not trust him. So Paul is picking up on that. Is he making this contrast between the rulers of this age and those who receive revelation, the wisdom of God. The way of salvation is hidden for unbelievers. But it's the very thing that God has prepared beforehand for those whom he has set his love upon. Again, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, or the heart of man imagined. Right? Ear, eye, heart. Remember, heart is that uh, uh, the concept of that in that culture is, is not merely the emotions, like in our culture we think of, but it's the whole inner life of a person. It's heart. And the point is that the way of salvation cannot be deduced, cannot be grasped by human intellect or human emotions or human will. God must reveal, God must act. He must reveal the saving truth of the gospel for it to be received and trusted. Because the natural man cannot do so. And that's why you see, if we go back to when Paul spoke of emptying the message of its power, remember in chapter 1. It's foolish when we consider these things uh, to, to, to try and ape the world and the ways of the world in conveying the message of the gospel. God will have his way. It does not need to be improved upon. Rather we are to trust that God knows what he's doing and to listen to him and follow his prescription in regard to that message and his ways. The truth of the gospel will not make sense to those who are perishing. Again, there's a hard distinction that Paul has been making throughout chapter 1 and even now into chapter 2. But by God's grace and his mercy and his power and his plan for those to whom he gives a heart to receive it, It truly is love, the power of God unto salvation, the powerful word. And so if you belong to this King and this Redeemer and this Savior, if you are His and He is yours, rejoice and give praise, delight in this King, brothers and sisters. Reflect and meditate upon that love, His love and His power and His care and His rescue and His giving you life. And in the fact that he chose you to reveal the way of eternal life to you. Praise him, brothers and sisters. And then he goes on and he kind of caps this off in the first part of verse 10. And he says this. These things God has revealed through the spirit. Right? There's a summary of all that he's been saying. So that's the first part that we see in this passage about the wisdom of God. Who receives it or the revelation and its recipients it is the people of God. And then the second point. How is that wisdom received? Or the revealer of that revelation uh, that had been received. And Paul picks up in verse, uh, verse 10. And he simply says, for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit, who is from God, that we might understand these things freely, given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You see the the, the repetition of the distinction going on here. Paul tells us that divine wisdom, true wisdom, is revealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the revealer of this revelation. Because it, it is not, and it cannot be discovered by human wisdom. That's the hard thrust of what Paul has been telling us. It is God alone who gives life to the dead. And when we reflect upon this, and we trust it, and we believe it, and it gets into us, and we get into it, knowing this fact should embolden us. It should, it should encourage us, and give us confidence and boldness, especially in our attitudes and our actions to non-believers. It right? should embolden us. not up to you. It's up to the Lord. And so we are to be faithful. And part of that is trusting in faith that God will have his way with whomever he will. God's wisdom must be revealed by God himself. And it can only be comprehended by faith, which, oh, by the way, is a gift of God. He's the one that gives faith to receive this as well. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit, right? It's that's. It's the Holy Spirit who illumines our minds and gives us understanding of what God says in His Word. It's the Spirit who enables us to accept what He says as the truth that it is. The wisdom of Christ is revealed to God's people and it is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the revealer of revelation. It's the Holy Spirit's work, the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's hard to miss this when you look at this, even just these verses 10 to 14. Right? It's hard to miss the emphasis on the Spirit and the Spirit's work there. We read in those four verses, repeated references to the Spirit. Six times he mentions the Holy Spirit. Paul says that the Spirit reveals. And the Spirit also does what? Searches the deep things of God. Uh, and, then, and parenthetically, right, we've already seen in this passage, the divinity of Jesus. Um, we also see that there's evidence here of the divinity of the Holy Spirit and of the truthfulness of, the, of Trinitarianism, right? What Christianity uh, is grounded upon. Because something lesser or unequal could not search the depths of something greater. The Spirit searches the depths of God. And therefore the Spirit must be equal to the Father. And that's, of course, what the Christian church has confessed for two millennia uh, in her creeds and confessions. And it's because that which is needed to be known for salvation must come by the Holy Spirit. People coming to faith, by any other means, is ruled out. It's ruled out by any other means. It's the work of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. And therefore it can't be through what? It can't be through man's will, or man's goodness, or man's works. The Holy Spirit must reveal the things of God to us. And we saw we read John 16 in our New Testament reading, uh, because some of the same things are being touched on there, right Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will teach the disciples what certain truths that they otherwise could not have known. He will convict the world of sin. The Spirit will teach God's people about the righteousness of Christ. He will warn of judgment. And so God's wisdom regarding how He saves sinners. Is revealed in God's word, not in any other place, not in general revelation, not in God's creation. Out in the world, we cannot drive at the gospel for that. We need special revelation, which God has given us in his word. And so in addition to the, the problems in Corinth that we've already looked at, um, there were also false religions that claimed to have a secret knowledge, right, a secret knowledge going on at that time, uh, and they said to have discovered this secret knowledge, this secret wisdom, and they could pass it on, and reveal it to others. Uh, but the key is there that it was something that was secret and had to be kept covert. Contrary to this, Paul makes the point that apart from the Spirit's revelation of the mind of God, there is no secret wisdom. And when does God reveal his wisdom? It's revealed whenever the message of the cross goes out. Whenever the, the, the gospel goes forth and is preached, that secret wisdom of God is, uh, is revealed. Uh, and notice that the message, this message, the gospel, it isn't a secret covert message. It was hidden in ages past in types and shadows, but it's been fully revealed. It is public. It is not private. And so you don't need to be in the know, a special Gnosticoi, they called it themselves, to get the secret knowledge. It is public. It goes out to all. And the Spirit works on those whom he chooses, and he gives them a heart to receive it. He gives them life and unites them to Christ. Uh, listen to Paul in Galatians chapter 3. We see some of these same things um, spoken of, Galatians 3. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Right? We hear some of the same things going on there. The Spirit's work. The Spirit's the revealer. The Gospel. The good news. It is a proclamation. It is an announcement. It goes out primarily through preaching. Also in written form. Also in evangelism. And the way we know this... It's by the revelation of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. It's the same Spirit who authored your life, authored that book that you have in your lap. It's the author of the Scriptures, the same author of your salvation, of your life. How do we know how and what God does among His creation? It's by the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on in verse 11, For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Right? There's this contrast again. Paul cycles through. He continues to layer it. And he highlights for us. Verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. And why? For what reason? To what end have we received the Spirit of God? Verse 12 goes on. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. He gives us the spirit that we would understand what he's given us. And this is where we get our worldview from. Our increasingly ever sanctifying and clearer Christian worldview. Our view of all things. The word of God is the lens Calvin would speak of. Through which we interpret all things. And it's through the lens of God's word that the Holy Spirit brings things into corrected focus for us. And this is something that we continue to ask God for, correct? In your private Bible reading. Beforehand, what do we do? We ask Him, before we read, to reveal Himself in that Word. To give us insight and understanding by the Holy Spirit in that Word. And that's why every Lord's Day, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, before the reading and preaching of His Word, we pray a prayer of illumination. We ask that he would be with us, that he, that he would go forth with that word, that he would help us to understand what that word is saying. We need to remember that the spirit who breathed out, right, the word is inspired usually, it's better said expired, the, the word of God is breathed out by God, it's also the one who enables us to understand that word when it's read and when it's proclaimed. And in verse 13, Paul brings a contrast again between the teaching of human wisdom and the teaching of the spirit. The cross is a spiritual uh, word. It must be spiritually discerned, he says there. It's not a secret word, it's a spiritual word. And the emphasis and contrast that Paul has been making comes to a head uh, powerfully in verses 14 to 16 and notice, by the way, that in, in case it hadn't been powerfully clear, uh, theologies and branches of the Christian family tree that deny the absolute sovereignty of God uh, in salvation are really left without a place to stand when we look at passages like this. It's really permeates Scripture. But verses 14 to 16, this whole passage really, uh, really take any grounding that they have to stand on. Powerfully on display here, the sovereignty of God absolutely in regard to salvation. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that determines whether a person is a believer or not, right? It says a spiritual man or a natural man. It is not human intelligence or ability or wisdom. The New Testament knows nothing of what has been called decisional regeneration. Have you heard that phrase? Decisional regeneration. That's a theological system that teaches that one's decision for Christ is somehow the mechanism that initiates their regeneration, their new birth. That is not biblical. It's not a biblical teaching. It is not the case that God has gone 99% of the way and you need to make that 1% reach towards God. You're dead in your sins. Dead people can't reach. They can't go 0%, Level alone 1%. It doesn't work because we're dead. The dead can do nothing. And so Paul says in verse 14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things. But he himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. How is that? By virtue of the Spirit, His power and presence residing in you as people of God, united to Christ. Paul is is powerfully clear here. I hope you would agree. The person, it says, who does not have the Holy Spirit does not accept, it says, accept the things of the Spirit of God. Accept, it's a word that means to receive, to welcome. So without the Spirit's working, the things of God cannot be received. It cannot be accepted. And without the working of the Spirit, these things remain uh, confusing and foolish and weak. They don't make sense. And the contrast between the natural person and the spiritual person is everywhere evident in this passage. One of the places we see that worked out in real life, in our lives, is at times like we saw last week when we had this covenant child brought under the waters of baptism. The child's uh, parents brought that child because they trusted God's covenant oath to them—the covenant oath that He made way back when, "I will be a God to you, and you will be My people." And they sought to ratify that covenant oath through baptism, as commanded and instructed by Scripture. You know, unbelieving world sees that—the natural person—they don't understand this. What are you doing? Seems senseless because they think, how can this baby be thinking or doing anything? How long to force your beliefs on that child, the, the unthinking world, uh, the, the world in its unchristian thinking assumes and asks. That child should be able to choose for herself. Don't force your religion on that child. I'm sure you've heard things like that. But Christian parents understand that it's because uh, the God of Abraham told... Uh, the God of Abraham told Abraham in Genesis 17, he said, And as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And the natural man, the unthinking, uh, I'm sorry, the unchristian thought sees that. And it doesn't make sense to them. And you know baptism, which by, you well aware know, replaced circumcision in the new covenant as a sign of the covenant. The point is that when we baptize infants, it's not about the child deciding anything. It's about God promising something. Again, we, we hit it hard last week. God is the active party. He's promising to keep what? The covenant promise that he made long ago. When we see this, we understand God's wisdom is requiring the covenant sign to children of believers. And part of the reason for that is because they can't yet do anything in relation to God. Baptism is connected to believing parents trusting God's promise. But this is the very thing that the lost world, uh, uh, that the lost and those who think in worldly categories Uh, don't get, they get lost to it. And so God's power and wisdom are made clear in the presence of human weakness, right? Not wise, not powerful, not noble. That's precisely the definition of a child. Well, as you can see, these things are laid down and layered and connected all over scripture and redemptive history and even in our lives. We began this message by giving an example of uh, of, sadly, some who attempt to be wiser than God by replacing the wisdom of God for our own wisdom or the ways of the world. According to the dictates of worldly wisdom, even in our worship and church life, what is sought after? Guru, celebrity, preachers, fads and fashion chasing, preaching based on the revelancy, uh, relevancy of my life or the promise of my best life now, Busy programs, segregating age groups in worship, so as not to distract people. I don't mean to be negative about these things. These things can be uh, can rise to be not only distractions for we as God's people, but great offenses to a great and holy God. What does the wisdom of God dictate in regard to our practice? Simple, faithful preaching of the gospel. Covenant, whole family worship where everyone learns from their earliest years through their final years to love and to grow and to receive together as the covenant family that they are. A reliance on God's power and work, the work of God and seemingly ordinary things like word and sacraments. If we belong to Christ, we are by definition by the Spirit of God indwelt, and therefore we have the mind of Christ. And this, brothers and sisters, the reason why we look for the wisdom of God and the demonstration of the power uh, in those places that seem the weakest to the world. And this can be very hard, even for us. Even for us. Because we are yet completely, finally perfect, perfected. Maybe you yourselves. Here this morning, desire the things of the Spirit. Repentance, increased faith, increased trust, uh, increased trust in your sanctification. I pray that you do desire those things. But maybe still your heart is broken when you fail and when you blow it and when you sin and you're weak again one more time. And I pray that your heart is broken in regard to those things. Because that broken heart of yours is evidence of the spirit that he yet lives in you and is working on you. You hate your sin. You hate your sin. Is repentance more for you than a mere abstract principle, more than an abstract theological idea or something that you assent to intellectually? Or do you passionately, purposefully avail yourselves of the means of grace? Do you lament the sins that you hate? Are you heartbroken over your sins? Do you despise your sins? Dear Christian, in the midst of your temptation and your struggle and your battle against sin, remind yourselves again of the truth that you are not a natural person, a spiritual person. The Spirit dwells within you. You're united to Jesus Christ. You are not alone in your battle. You're not alone in the fight that you're in. And tell yourselves again and again and again that Jesus is better than that sin. Jesus is better. Jesus is best. He has more for you. He has better for you. And meditate on that. Meditate on it often. And buy it. The Holy Spirit will strengthen you. Little by little. And He will make you stronger as you surrender to Him and the strength of his might. Let us praise, brothers and sisters, this great Redeemer and King that we have. Let us praise him for granting to us faith and for the promise to abide in us, and we will live forever for him.